Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sarah Carradine, podcasting from unceded Gadigal land. I'm Mari Forth. And this is Crime Scene, the true crime review podcast where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. Let's open today's file. We watched Dream Killer. Yes. Um, And to discuss this very, very interesting documentary that was brought to us by an RHAP patron. I just want to shout out Josh Green, one half of the uh, RHAP Out of Context uh, account. We are going to be talking about Dream Killer and we have the wonderful guest, a seasoned world traveler, a diehard reality TV fan. She is RHAP's chief amazing race correspondent, Jessica Lise. Jess, how are you? Yeah, I'm great, Mari. And uh, I also want to thank Josh Green. And I, I'm really wondering how a discussion of a serious true crime documentary property is going to mm-hmm. make its way into RHAP OOC. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to hope yeah. it's table. Yeah, well, we've, we've we've already had a few, so I'm uh, yeah. I'm just uh, on tenterhooks, I suppose. Yeah, how many stomachs does the horse have? Who knows? I just thank you so much for for coming on for this. Oh, sure. I'm excited. I've been wanting to for a long time. We just haven't found exactly the right thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think this might be it, Jess. Can you tell us like what is it about true crime that really appeals to you? And what is your like true crime story that that got you really into the genre? Well, I'm not necessarily one of those, you know creepy dark kids who <laughs> reads the Anne Rule books at age 10. Um, yeah. I definitely dabbled in that growing mm-hmm. up, but it's really been kind of the renaissance of great journalistic podcasting that has pulled me yes. back into the true crime fold. And there's so much out there that's really well done that tells a compelling story. And I'm mm. always here for the compelling story of it all. And you can't resist those morbid impulses. Like if something, uh-huh. if, if there's a story that's got like some really salacious or gruesome element to it, of course that pulls you in. Of course that's, you know, that's in everybody's nature, but yeah, I, I would say I'm a, I'm a filthy casual at best. <laughs> Maybe my favorite podcast 
you know, don't tell anybody in the RATP orbit, but perhaps my favorite podcast and the one that drops jumps to the top of my queue the second it drops is Case File. And it doesn't really matter what he's talking about. I know it's going to be well-researched and it's going to take me for a ride. So like every Saturday morning, I am, I've got case file up and running. And I think that has been my gateway drug into a lot of other, I'm mostly a podcast person, although I read a lot of right. books. And so when we get to recommendations later, I'm going to recommend some books, but. Oh, excellent. Love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my, that's my true crime. That's my true crime arena. Basically. I it's love that. I don't know if I've heard of that podcast. Uh, oh, I've, I've shotted it down. That's great. I have jotted mm-hmm. it down. It's going to jump to the top of my queue as well. And as always, everyone, we're going to uh, everything that we talk about will be uh, in the show notes. It's interesting since mm-hmm. Mary and I started this uh, podcast. Uh, the true crime fans, filthy casuals, experts uh, are just everywhere we look. Uh, everyone's interested <laughs> in true crime. So this was our thesis that it tells us about ourselves, um, and they they can be incredibly compelling stories and. And it seems like, you know, as we say, we've been telling stories for millennia and uh, this is just one one vehicle and people seem to really latch onto it. So mm-hmm. today the story we're going to look at is Dream Killer. It's a 2015 documentary feature. It landed on Netflix in 2019 and I think that's obviously where it came to much more prominence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's produced and directed by Andrew Jenks. Um, he was only 29 when he made this film, so a couple of years younger than Ryan Ferguson, the the, um, the subject of the documentary. He has a new film coming out called Billion Dollar Babies, The True Story of the Cabbage Patch Kids. <laughs> I cannot wait. That's dropping on uh, Tribeca Online on June the 14th. Um, so, Mari, Jess, what, what, what's the crime in, the, uh, in this documentary? So I, I, can we just start off on the documentary name? It's like it's mm-hmm. Dream Slash Killer, and I'm like, I like how you're saying it, Sarah, like dream killer. Like the, 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 I'm not going to lie. This has been on Netflix for a while, but it never jumped out to me. It truly didn't jump out to me from the name, from like any of the trailer of anything that I saw. Like, honestly, uh, again, thanks so much to Josh Green. If he hadn't recommended it to me, I don't think I would have given this the time of day, unlike some of the other properties that uh, we've talked about. And, um, I wonder if that's kind of the case of I, Andrew Drink, Jinx. I think I looked him up. Not only was he young, but this was one of his first, basically his first forays into act, like filmmaking. Um, so I'm not trying to just, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm just like downing the name or anything, but it definitely wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I'm just so glad that I watched it because this is a, this is for our, uh, our, what are we, the, you know, the, the murderinos, the people who love the diehard homicides, the gruesomeness. This is what this film, these are who the, the this film is for because less than a minute in, oh. I looked at it a minute in mm. the real actual crime scene video, unedited, unblurred. So content warning for some of our, um, our, our listeners who are watching this, who might be averse to blood, I'm sorry. Maybe we should have put this on our last episode, but uh, like less than a minute in, it is the raw um, crime scene footage. So just be aware of that. And I think this, uh, this is a huge misstep. And one of uh, yeah. I have to say, I really like this documentary, but one of the only missteps was this immediate, unedited, unheralded, and completely unnecessary uh, crime scene uh, photos. 
it's just, also yeah it's cognitively so like it's totally different from the entire rest of the film mm-hmm. and this is interesting um this is interesting to me because the bulk of it like once you get past that the rest of it's relatively dry yeah yeah the rest of it is it, it, it's just like a um a full-length version of of a, a dateline or a 2020 in a sense um you know not too much of the talk you know the the narrators themselves mm-hmm. but i agree with you jess this was the most the, the beginning is the most gruesome and i don't know if they're trying to really like pack it on the head like the crime because technically unfortunately the the victim's name is kent heinhold like he gets lost in this you know the victim technically gets lost in this um this documentary because this documentary is not really um objective in my view what do you guys think i feel like this documentary had a a a course that they wanted to prove that ryan was innocent and that that is it it was not a subjective doc at all just what do you think is any doc truly subjective right you have to go in (laughs) knowing what story you want to tell Mm -hmm. and but I did think it was a curious choice that we don't talk about the crime literally at all for the entire rest. It's not even it. I wouldn't even call this a true crime documentary. Mm. If we're really thinking about it, this is a judicial process, investigative Ooh. journalism documentary. Mm. This is really the crime is the inciting incident, but this is really about Ryan's process and how did Ryan get where he is and how is he going to get out of this situation and how is his family going to help him achieve that goal? That's yeah, a, yeah. it's so not the, at all about the crime. Yeah, uh, our vict- uh, the victim here is Kent Heitholt. He was the sports reporter uh, at the uh, Columbia Daily Tribune. He was uh, found uh, murdered in a uh, in the parking lot there in uh, November, the beginning of November, twenty o one, sort of overnight uh, Halloween night. And the story is that uh, Ryan Ferguson uh, was, uh, as we find out, spoiler alert, wrongfully convicted for his murder <laughs> uh, because his friend um, Chuck Erickson. Uh, his co-accused two years after the murder, when there was um, a, a sort of a follow-up uh, in the in the press, as happens because the murder was still unsolved. He says he's been having dreams about having done the murder. This is Chuck, yes. that Ryan was there with him. Uh, he becomes obsessed with this. He mentions it to a couple of friends of his and their friends feel that they must uh, call the police, which they do. And we get that phone call from uh, one of the friends. And thus, uh, you know, the the, uh, the documentary is set in motion, shall we say, uh, for now these boys were 17 at the mm-hmm. time of the murder and so 19 at the time of their arrest. And if you don't mind, Sarah, I really want to hammer home kind of the first five minutes of this documentary because it, it it truly was the first five minutes that I was like, oh, I'm very glad that this was recommended because at minute one, we get the gruesome crime scene photos. We then get the 911 call of uh, if it was it the friend or was it Chuck Harris? Check no, it was it, it was one of the friends. Uh, okay, that, so that one of the police. Yeah, we got we got a call from one of uh, Chuck's friends saying like, "Hey, I know a guy who um, is saying that he may have uh, done this murder." This is two years later. This is in two thousand three. So then it it, it jumps to um, Chuck Erickson's like in the back of like a police car. Like they're taking him back to the crime scene, 
and he's trying to say what he he thinks happened. He's like, oh, there's snapshots. I don't really remember, you know. And then he was like, oh yeah, Ryan was there too. And then again, still first five minutes, we get Ryan talking about how like it was just a normal day. It was a regular day. I was driving. I had a great day at school. I pulled up at my apartment complex. All of a sudden, um, a, a truck pulls up behind me and they're saying they're FBI and I got to get in their car. Like, um, And then we get the footage, the police footage of him in the police car in the back. Can, and this is what I thought was really um, impactful because I, I just thought of it putting myself in that position can you imagine just finishing up your day uh you're about to park in your home and then all of a sudden the police grab you and not only do they grab you to arrest you but this this he stays arrested for a decade after this you know what i'm saying like and he you know if everything is to be believed he has no idea why they're even there you know what i'm saying like and on this police that this police interior footage he's he's really like i don't know why you are arresting me and the officer is like well your friend chuck erickson is talking and he's like about what <laughs> he's like about that night two years ago halloween night you guys murdered you well, you know and he's like i don't know we weren't there we went home and the guy's like don't get mad at me get mad at chuck and then we go back this is all in the first like six minutes. We we then get confessional footage um, from uh, the officer talking to Chuck Erickson and Chuck. Is well, like, if you can call it confessional, yes. I would call it feeding Chuck all the information about the crime scene that Chuck doesn't know. Exactly, and that is and that is exactly what I wanted to point out because it is immediately that you're like, this is not how you can cor- you should correctly be interrogating somebody because he's like chuck so we know you guys did it and chuck is like uh i i think i did it i'm not sure i can't remember and he's like oh well you know we we got your prints there we got the the things here and chuck's like yeah yeah and then it's interspersing chuck's coercive uh interrogation with ryan's where ryan is really just like I don't know what to tell you. I was not there. He's very adamant that he wasn't there. And then the police are like, but Chuck was there and Chuck is putting you there. And then Ryan's like, well, Chuck's lying. And then he was like, well, Chuck is putting you there. And, and Ryan was like, I don't even think Chuck was there. And then the police officer was like, well, what? Did, which one is it? Is Chuck lying or, or was he not there? And you can just see that Ryan is so frustrated because he's just like, I don't know. I just know I wasn't there. What do we think about these these like really first ten minutes of this this documentary, uh, Jess? I think like one of the overarching messages that the documentary comes back to, and I I apologize for like going holistically and not going oh, beat by beat no, here. No, but no, um, one of the overarching messages that I think Bill Ferguson literally says, this could happen to any of you. Mm-hmm. And I think this does do a very good job of giving you that sense. Mm-hmm. Like that this is something you could be just going about your normal life and then suddenly, you know, you are the subject of this intense scrutiny for something that you have no clue about any of it. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I will say about true crime, if you consume enough of it over the course of a few months or years. The main takeaway from it is how broken our judicial process oh, is. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this is really like, 
especially when it comes to like police questioning and you mm-hmm. can get this from like your any random law and order episode mm-hmm. but the way that the police kind of it is their job to not necessarily solve the crime but to get someone on trial for the crime and so the fragility of memory around this stuff like the question the leading questions they asked Chuck to get him to the conclusion that he committed the crime and then the process by which they then were able to use that against Ryan like there's nothing there and they make a lot of something out of nothing exactly yeah and neither of uh, neither of these young men have representation in the room it's just uh, some well, apparently one police officer and then there's a moment where they finish uh, talking to Ryan and another police officer appears from off camera and you think that man was in the room the whole time and he wasn't uh, on camera. I'll just jump to the back of uh, Ryan's mother Leslie's T-shirt, which she wears um, throughout the 10 years. Um, a friend had a dream in which he was involved in a murder after hours of harassment uh, Ryan stands by his work claiming his innocence. And then she says, no murder weapon, no physical evidence, no DNA, no eyewitnesses, no connection. There were fingerprints um, at the crime scene, but they were not Chuck's or Ryan's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ex- exactly. And um, in and like Sarah correctly pointed out earlier, in um, Chuck's interrogation um, video, the, the officer even says at one point, there's one piece of inf- information that I've kept from you. What was Kent strangled with? And Chuck says, I don't know, uh, a shirt or something. And the police is like, well, we know it's not a shirt. And Chuck says, um, maybe some rope or, or bungee cord from, from inside his, his car. But I don't know why he'd have that. The cop says, you know, we know that it's not a bungee cord or a rope or anything like that. And, and he says, we know that it was a belt. Um, did you see Ryan with a belt in his hand or or something that looked like a rope or a cord? And then Chuck was like, yes, yes, it was a belt. It, it was a belt. Ryan had the belt. And it was just like, all, I feel like that's all you needed. You should have been able to show the jury. And, mm-hmm. and they should have already, they should have thought that was ridiculous. Well, jumping know? ahead, they did show the jury. And the jury said, we can't see it and we can't hear it. It was too fuzzy. It was on a, uh, a projector, oh, such as I remember right. from school. And yes. the jury the jury said, we can't see or hear it. Shall, uh, I mean, uh, that trial was horrifying. Just yeah, this, um, get, this defense attorney. I mean, we could literally go minute by minute, but um, uh, let's jump to the trial. One of our main narrators is Bill Ferguson, Ryan's yeah. father. He, he's very, very clear. Uh, and he's very helpful to us to take us along. But let's go to Ryan's trial uh, with his defence attorney, Charles Rogers. Charles Rogers, Jess. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, well, the, you know what they say about the person that, you know, it, it's the old joke about the person that graduated last in her class in medical school and you can call him doctor. <laughs> mm-hmm. The same, like, you know, you can call this guy Esquire. Um, he yes. was really like there were a lot of things that there's a lot of boats that he missed I actually thought when we were watching I mean unbelievably painful watching the, the, the footage from the trial mm-hmm. uh, with this man I thought it was going they were going to go for ineffective um, counsel uh, advice of yeah. counsel first yes, which they never did I mean they never That's, did I'm surprised at that 
He yeah, had, he too. called he called uh, Chuck Erickson Mr. Ferguson at one point, who is his client. Uh, he had a map that was incorrectly labelled, which Bill Ferguson had told him was incorrectly labelled, and he still took it. He had the interrogation tapes projected onto this, you know, pull-up mm. screen projected that the jury said they couldn't see or hear. He did nothing about that. Mm. Um, I mean, we're laughing, but it. It is horrifying. It is. Uh, I actually thought, was he having absence seizures? Because he had moments where he just completely stopped and didn't say anything. Yeah. Like, where was I again? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like, it was really weird um, seeing this footage in the documentary. Like we said, you know, we're we're all we're going to do all full spoilers here, but you can always watch the properties that we talk about because it's always good to watch them because this was truly like he would be in the middle of a sentence and kind of just forget what he was saying or or where his line of questioning was going and i i thought that was unbelievable from the start like they should have just see if they could have switched him out or get got, gotten him like an you know an assistant or something um just right out the gate but so that's his ineffective defense to counsel um but they never we, took that line yeah. they never took that line yeah you, sorry i'm ever, calling him ineffective they did it yeah, absolutely did you ever see the movie sleepers yes i did not this guy is dustin hoffman in sleepers <laughs> <laughs> like I, they, I but they purposely <laughs> yeah the 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 trial in sleepers they purposely hire an incompetent defense attorney mm. so that they use like ineffective counsel as an argument as i recall it's been a while since i've seen it but yeah uh, it's, it's been like, a while since i've seen it but yes yeah. I, I i like that uh, comparison a good movie uh pop, pop that on your lists everybody mm-hmm. um i mean the interesting thing about the trial and we will move on from the trial in a moment but uh, uh chuck charles er- erickson uh comes in to testify he's in uh prison i mean almost like a costume from a community theatre play about criminals, a black and white striped uh, jumpsuit. He is handcuffed. And, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic move by the prosecutor, Kevin Crane, not one of our favourite people, mm-hmm. uh, because the jury is obviously going to think, why would you say that you killed someone if you didn't? Right. And that, that thought alone, which, which Kevin Crane comes at from all different angles, is enough to make this young boy seem very credible. And mm-hmm. he is saying that Ryan was there. He is one of the eyewitnesses. The other eyewitness is a very brave woman who does come forward later called Shauna Aunt. She was the janitor of the, um, the Tribune. She came out and glimpsed two white men uh, calling out and, and walking away from the scene. And she did a composite, which it must be said, looks startlingly like Chuck Erickson. Now, nobody's saying that Chuck actually did it, but that was one of the things that played on Chuck's mind was this composite looked very much like him. But she said 100% she told Kevin Crane it was not Ryan Ferguson. So when she's on the stand, Kevin Crane doesn't say, you know, do you see the person who did it here in the in the courtroom and can you point them out, that very famous moment that we see in all the movies. And because Kevin Crane didn't ask, um, Charles Rogers, uh, Ryan's defence attorney, also didn't ask. And because she was a young woman at the time 19. and she, 19, she uh-huh. says she felt very uh, terrorised by Kevin Crane in the preparation. She said she was not going to volunteer any information she wasn't asked for. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, we cannot understate how like these two, these two boys, they were, they would have been 17 when the crime occurred. They were between 19 and 20 when this trial happened. So a lot of these people, the witness Shauna was, was 19 as well. They're very impressionable because of course, like even Ryan at this point, I know he has to be thinking, I didn't do anything. So, you know, eventually everybody will see I didn't do anything that that's normally what a a lot of wrongfully convicted people say they're like they know they know deep down inside that they didn't do it so how could the justice system um convict them but unfortunately that happens a lot you know way more than I feel like it should you know um so it's always that sentiment of like if you're there you have to be there for a reason you know well, that's one of the up. problems, apparently, mm-hmm. that, that, that juries, that there is a bias in juries, an unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. If you have been charged, then you must have done something. There's this right. awful thought rather than the other way around. And then when you get suborned perjury of our friend Jerry Trump, Jess oh, Howard, Jerry Trump's a convicted sex offender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this was wild to me. Like yeah. this was, well, I mean, going back to Kevin Crane for a second, mm-hmm. I think it really highlights how we structure our entire justice system. And indeed, I think our government system, I don't want to get too political here, but we structure it in this term of like, we shouldn't call it you won a case because Mm -hmm. it really sets it up to treat it like a sports event. And I really like the sense I get from Kevin Crane is like, he doesn't actually care whether justice is being served. He just Mm -hmm. wants to win. The win. Yes. And I think this is, this is one thing I feel like needs to be reformed on a deep level. And we think about it like even extending like out to politics. It's not really we shouldn't call it you won because it sets up like the other guys are losers. And agreed. And yeah. and people use these type of cases, prosecutors use these type of cases to springboard their careers to be, oh, let oh. Judge Crane, I mean, Kevin Crane is now a judge. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like th- this is what happens when you prioritize getting a conviction mm-hmm. over actually finding out who, who did that and be and being absolutely stone sure that you have the person who committed the crime that you are charging somebody with, you know? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, look at me. I did a great thing. I got this guy convicted for for years and years on the flimsiest shred of evidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That makes me um, good at my job. And when uh, Kathleen Zellner uh, comes in as uh, his as, as Ryan's defence attorney, she takes she takes up the case. She has a very, I mean, just startling to camera where she says it shouldn't be this hard. Once something is mm-hmm. done and done incorrectly, it shouldn't be this hard to undo it. But as we see again and again with wrongful convictions, you can have. All the new evidence, you can have confessions from the person who actually did it, you can have proof of suborned perjury. But once you are incarcerated, the system is extremely reluctant to let you go. And exactly. that's something that where, where Zellner agrees with you, Jess, it needs reform, like the yeah. system needs to be reformed. It, it, it's, it's along those lines of like winning and losing. If you admit you're wrong, this is toxic masculinity. Yeah. I can't admit, can't admit we were wrong about something. Because that will make people not trust us. It will make us feel less manly. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's just staggering. Like it's very clear that there's Something. not the evidence. Yeah, the evidence exactly. is very clear, and especially like with Jerry Trump being like blatantly fed this story 
that definitely did not happen and right. how hard it was to even get him to like come back and say that it didn't happen. Yeah. Um, yes. J- Jerry Trump's even his initial story to me does not seem like it would be credible in in a sense like even if he said like because they are he originally said like oh yeah Shauna came and grabbed me we saw two figures but I couldn't clearly see them but then the next thing is like oh I, I saw them in the newspaper mm-hmm. and I was like oh yeah those are the guys but normally that type of evidence is excluded because if you see them in the newspaper you're biased already because you would see a headline you would see the article this yeah. is why in his, that in in Ryan's initial trial, Jerry Trump said, "Oh, I saw the pictures first, and when I saw the pictures, I was like, those are the guys." Before saying that he read the headline or the article, because if he had said, "I read the article, I saw the headline, and I saw the two guys' pictures," and that's when I was like, "Oh yeah, it was those two guys," that should be, that should have been a sticking point for the defense. Like you cannot have a witness that's on the stand who's pointing at your um who's who's pointing at your uh your defendant who basically got it from a newspaper article. Like you you just cannot have that. So again. Him saying like it was folded in a way that it <laughs> yeah. makes the the story plausible and 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 can't get it can't get it thrown out by the judge. A judge should have probably thrown out this testimony, to be quite honest. Um, uh, but it was said in such a way that it was let you know let let through. I don't know why they didn't yeah. challenge this testimony by Jerry Trump. Well, well, it was uh, it was the counsel that we had. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But the, the thing is yeah. that later, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. There's a couple more. There's an evidentiary hearing uh, where uh, a lot of this stuff comes out. Um, and then uh, that they lose that. And then under with Kathleen Zellner, they have a habeas hearing. And it's at this hearing that uh, uh, Shauna has come forward and told uh, Bill Ferguson, Ryan's father, that she 
outright told Kevin Crane that it was not, it was 100% not Ryan uh, and uh, very courageous of her to come forward. Now she's uh, in court saying that Jerry Trump, who's converted to Mormonism and is slightly mm-hmm. guilted by Kathleen Zellner, who says, oh, my grandmother was a Mormon, you have to tell the truth, and he is shaking and crying and he he. Uh, he tells the story of the suborned perjury that it was uh, Kevin Crane who told him, plus who made up the story of the folded envelope that the wife sent him. Um, And we think about this type of eyewitness evidence anyway, just lensing way, way, way out. Eyewitnesses are notoriously notoriously unreliable and if if I may just uh, uh, jump to Stephen Avery for a moment seeing as we're, we're in the Kathleen Zellner territory his first conviction I remember hearing about this is before making a murder years before uh, Radio Lab did a, an article with the woman who originally accused him of rape when she was being, I'm sorry everybody, warning when she was being raped she thought she was going to die but she also thought I will look at this man, this stranger, and I will imprint his face on my memory so that if I live, I am able to uh, identify him. She Mm -hmm. did live. She saw Stephen Avery or she was shown Stephen Avery. She 100% knew that it was Stephen Avery. That was his first conviction and he went to jail for that. Another man was found to actually be the rapist and when she saw him, she had no memory of him. She looked at him and, and just knew she'd never seen him. This misidentification has uh, haunted this woman, which is why we never hear from her in any of the Making a Murderer uh, um, shows because she will not speak on the record anymore. But it's a very interesting uh, interview with her on Radio Lab if you can, if you can source it. The, the, my point, and I do have one, is that, you would think if anybody could remember a face, it would be this woman under these circumstances. But in fact, no, it's it's very hard. I myself have been held up mm-hmm. at knife point. Um, I was shown an array and uh, videotaped while I was looking at it. It was all very well done by New South Wales Police. Well done, New South Wales Police. Uh, they did get him, but because he was shocked by one of his friends, not because I could identify him. Um, I looked at a, a series of photos of, of men who were sort of similar to each other and none of them jumped out at me. So uh, mm-hmm. even in my own experience, um, eyewitnesses are uh, notoriously um, Sarah, unreliable. Jess, can y'all remember what y'all were doing three years ago today? Like that, that you know, <laughs> that that yeah. it, it's so true. Like, uh, you know, eyewitness testimony is really hard. It, it's, it's very hard. That's why you shouldn't totally basic case off of that like you know the, the the prosecutor went into this case telling the jury up front there would be no physical evidence but we don't need it because we have eyewitness testimony which I think I mean he did a good job of setting the expectations you, you see what I'm saying like because that's what it that's what it is you know most juries are looking for some physical evidence if you tell them up front Hey guys, there won't be any physical evidence. You're at least setting your bar pretty low, I think here. And I, I, I just want to say that the way the documentary is structured is, we get the original trial. They basically all of it is taped, so we get the 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 the, the trial pared down. Then we get his, con, you know, we get his conviction. He's sentenced to it was it was life without the possibility of parole plus uh, th- th- uh, th- uh, uh, 30 years for the murder 10 years for the robbery 
Thank you, Sarah. 30 years for the murder, mm-hmm. 10 years for the robbery. Um, and then we Although get, death, death was on the table. Right. Okay, that's what it was. Th- thank mm-hmm. you so much, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Then we get this middle section where basically it's um, Ryan's father, Bill, is continuously working on his case tiredly doggedly working on his case and then like sarah uh, pointed out we had zellner come in her plus uh mr ferguson made a great team so they they got rejected at the um at the appeals meeting because they they point out in the documentary it's really hard to get your your case overturned in the court where you're convicted in which again ugh. um but then they have the habeas meeting um, and then we get to the rest of the um, him getting out and all that. But I, I want to just kind of, kind of take it back a little bit and go to how uh, Bill Ferguson really did such an amazing job, really advocating for his son in order to get to the point where they got to at the habeas um, uh, meeting. So Bill Ferguson basically had all of the documents in his 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 garage he poured over everything he went back to the crime scene multiple times multiple times so so much so many times to the point where he was basically giving a crime scene tour where people would come up to him he'd have bus of kids uh walking them through this crime scene tour this is how he got shauna Ornt, the um the janitor um to talk to him to confess that she had told that she had told the prosecutor that Ryan wasn't there. You know, it's basically him doggedly following up leads that the police didn't do. Like, that's the only reason why I want to come back to this is because the police truly didn't even try to follow up on half of these leads. Like, a lot of it is the prosecutor, but what were the police doing? You know, um, one one only consistency <laughs> in Chuck's statement was, "Hey, we saw our friend Dallas Mallory at the corner uh, at this corner of this light." Right? He that was basically in every statement that he made. We saw our friend Dallas Mallory. We saw our friend Dallas Mallory. Nobody talked to Dallas Mallory. You know, Bill and and Catherine reached out to to Dallas Mallory. Dallas was like, "I wasn't there that night. I didn't see." um chuck that night i definitely didn't see ryan that night um and they they figured that out because um bill was at the crime scene at one in the morning and he realized that there was a blinking yellow light at the corner that he had said dallas was that chuck had said dallas was at and if it's a blinking yellow light it couldn't have been the red light that chuck said that dallas was at a red light they stopped they talked for a minute and then he went home so that's what prompted Bill and Catherine to reach out to Dallas. Dallas said I, he wasn't there, but Dallas also didn't have a license, y'all. He didn't have a license. He didn't have a car. He he didn't have a license because he had he was not um, he had a previous DWI. So they did no follow up to um, some of these material witnesses, and and we'll keep going through some of the inconsistencies and the no follow up. But just this right here, I mean, come on. Just uh, what is Dallas is the my my I well when I fell in love with uh, Dallas was when he said oh and Chuck said I was in a car with uh, two females in the back and he just looks at the camera and goes no that couldn't have been me <laughs> 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 uh, yes no. mm. so yes he's an exculpatory witness I, I like that word very much and just meaning <laughs> someone who uh, rather than uh, positively identifying you that you did it it's positively saying it was not as 
as the story has been told. He appears at the habeas meeting, uh, the habeas um, hearing as well. Yes. Um, We also get, so um, Bill Ferguson realizes, hey, has anybody talked to Jerry Trump's wife? Why did she send him that (laughs) that article? Why did she send him that article? Bill Ferguson tracks her down. She's like, no, I never. He, sorry, sorry to interrupt. He says he's seen enough Perry Mason. So yes, he, <laughs> yes, he, he uh, approached Mrs. Eight. Trump with the figure eight. Yes, <laughs> had he, you heard he, of this figure eight um, uh, thing, Jess? I hadn't heard of it before. I think I have. It is kind of it's a storytelling trope in the in the crime genre. Like, I think this is, this is something I, I'm sure I've heard it on Law and Order at some point. Yeah. Right. So you, yes. you, it felt very you, familiar. Hit, you hit yeah. the question, you move away from it, you come and back And then you come back and ask it a different way. At a different yeah. way. And if every time you hit that question, which I suppose is at the little waist of the figure eight, um, if you, if they answer the same way each time, then, then they're telling the truth. Yeah. And if it shifts, then they're not. And I, well, I thought this, this is, is very clever. Yeah. This is also a psychometrics thing. Like if you are giving someone a psychological test, yeah. you will frequently ask the same question a lot of different ways. So yeah. you can't game it. A lot mm-hmm. of those wonderlick tests or tests you would mm-hmm. take like for a job, um, like a job interview. Yeah, right. exactly. So uh, Mrs. Trump, former Mrs. Trump, I don't think they were married anymore. Um, <laughs> she basically says, I never sent him that article. I've never seen that article. I, you know, I, I nobody I did not. Me. I did not cleverly fold down the page such that he could not see the headline. Exactly. Exactly. Um, which, again, it just makes you think that they did not follow up on some of these inconsistencies because they did not want want these inconsistencies. To well, as we find out from Jerry, Kevin Crane himself made up the story of the mm-hmm. uh, the envelope, so he definitely wouldn't want to go and uh, speak to Mrs. Trump. But uh, why wasn't the defence doing so? Doing yeah. exactly what Bill Ferguson, private citizen, uh, manages to yeah. do uh, on his own. That's a great point. That that mm-hmm. is a great point. So, um, all of these inconsistencies uh, um, are presented at the the habeas uh, hearing. Yes, that's and, right. And this habeas hearing, correct me if I'm wrong. It did it. It was this it one was turned down. No, no, he it was turned out judge judge good. So they had an evidentiary hearing, which which failed. Then they have this habeas hearing once Kathleen Zellner gets her marvellous nails into the case and they appear before judge green and she and we have film of her in action it's absolutely fantastic she has a whole theatrical thing with the folded newspaper article which she shows kevin crane uh but judge green brings down the no uh answer she is expecting we have film of her in contemporaneously expecting that the answer will be yes to vacate right. the evidence so she is completely shocked when it doesn't so then they go to the higher court where they submit all the documents but you've only got an oral argument of 15 minutes before this court and you right. don't know what part of the uh, argument against uh, against the opinion of judge green you don't know which part of that uh, they're going to quiz you on so you have to be prepared to answer absolutely everything uh and they will quiz you on one thing and you have 15 minutes which also seems like in a complex case you have 15 minutes yeah um Mm -hmm. 
Did you know? Did you know this fifteen-minute uh, rule, Jess? I just certainly didn't know it. No, I've not heard about this at all. Me neither. This, this this was like giving me flashbacks to like speech and debate team. Mm-hmm. You, oh yes, yes. Like this is deep law. Like this is yeah. you know deep like higher appeals court law that uh, you know not my forensic science training did not touch. <laughs> Well, I'm thinking very confused by that as well. It is similar to if you argue before the Supreme Court, you get one hour, and that's all you get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm. I suppose the idea is that you have prepared your brief thoroughly. The judges, there are three judges uh, on the district court, this district court that sat. Um, They have read everything and thought about it and understood it. So I suppose they're not asking you to make your entire case in 15 minutes. They are perhaps asking you a question for clarity on anything that they need uh, clarity mm. on. Um, so this is the uh, judgment that comes down that the, not that he'll get a new trial, but that the uh, conviction is vacated, which means that he does not have to stand trial again. He never did it. It was never right. This is nine and a half years in jail. Uh, one time when Bill's just spoken to Ryan, he, he tells him that a, a man was killed in jail the night before. And Bill even tells us at any time in that nine and a half years, uh, Ryan could have been killed. Uh, Ryan gets $11 million in a civil suit against uh, the Missouri police. So people of Missouri, rise up. They just spent your money. That was your, it wasn't the police's $11 million. That was Uh your uh, $11 million. Um, The Ferguson family's offered $10,000 reward for for tips that can solve the case. Uh, I'm just going to do this and then we'll go back and talk about the, the piece as a whole. Uh, Charles Erickson, he's now Charles, no longer Chuck. He's set for parole in January of next year. Uh, he is still convicted of the crime, even though uh, Ryan is, has uh, conviction has been vacated. And mm-hmm. Kevin Crane is a circuit court judge for for the 13th uh, Circuit Court of Missouri. And the good people of Missouri elected him in 2006, re-elected him in 2012. And yeah. after this documentary came out, which showed that he suborned perjury, he was re-elected in 2018. So he is still on the bench. Yeah. Well, you know, because once you get on the bench here in America, a lot of due diligence isn't done when it comes mm-hmm. to voting. So you're like, oh, that guy's been here for a while and you just vote to keep him in there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that is the documentary. But I do want to stop down on Ryan here for a minute um, because throughout the documentary, Bill Ferguson, of course, he he's so dogged about getting him out. He has this car that says free Ryan that he ro- rolls around with that has Ryan's big old face on it. but. I, I think the documentary does a good job of um, not losing the fact that Ryan is in jail. Like while all of this is happening, he's in jail, losing the best years of his life for a crime he did not commit. So um, for when they're talking about Ryan's uh, escapades in jail, that sounds like the worst word for it, but um <laughs> They have like animated montages, which I think is just very well done. Um, This is one of the things that I really liked about the documentary. It kind of breaks it up a little bit just to show you what the stakes are in a sense. You know, we're going from one thing like one hearing to another hearing. And in between it, we get a montage of how Ryan talks about um, what it's like actually being in jail. And the scariest thing about hearing all the sounds and um, hearing the cries for help. 
gifts and, and, and all of the really graphic things. But then he goes back in, in one section, he talks about how um, we get his father talking about how they're so close. They play basketball together every day. And then Ryan talking about in prison, how him knowing how to play basketball and being very skilled at basketball essentially helped him survive in there because he was so good at it. He was able to make, fr- okay, I shouldn't say make friends. He was there to, to uh, gain respect so people wouldn't test him because he was really good at basketball. We even got a small little aside of him making jail pizza, which I couldn't even tell you <laughs> the ingredients if I tried. It was sounded like a heartburn <laughs> on a platter. But, you know, he was just talking about little things to, to you know, make it a little bit be- a little bearable while in there. Um, what do we think about these 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 tidbits with with Ryan here? Well, this reminded me of nothing so much as Orange is the New Black, like not necessarily mm. the series, but the memoir it's based on. There are a lot of asides similar to this about like mm. the skills that helped that helped the protagonist survive. And um, there is a prison recipe in there for cheesecake that is about as horrific as the prison pizza recipe. (laughs) Um, And those little like slice of life things, I think, really help add dimension to the story uh, because I think without it, it it is even drier. I think this I think this documentary on the whole does sometimes come off as very dry Mm -hmm. and it would be even drier without this little bit of color from um, from Ryan about what his life is like and how it is different from the life he imagined. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the animations are, they're surprising and they are beautifully done and we get them illustrating his, uh, his voiceover better than a reenactment by far, because it is about his life of the mind as well. He talks about reading books. He read three books a week uh, and he was always preparing himself uh, to get out. We see Mm -hmm. some uh, talking head interviews with him while he's still in prison and he talks after the, um, after the final hearing, like I'll either be out in six weeks or I'll still be here in six years. And you can see his attempt to, always think that he will be out and therefore what preparations does he need. And I think it's these moments with Ryan, especially the voiceovers with the grey on grey on grey moving animation that really elevate uh, this property beyond just a sort of a a, a 60-minute segment or whatever it might be. Well made, Mm -hmm. though, the rest of it is. Um, And the intriguing thing is we do get him sometime after his uh, release in a supermarket, talking about how completely unprepared he is to live in the world yeah. and the very thing that he tried for 10 years to make sure that he wasn't institutionalised, to make sure that he was preparing for the outside world, um, had not at that time been particularly successful. And I think this is also a great note because we're all cheering and happy that he's out and yay Kathleen Zellner and yay Bill Ferguson who continues now to to consult on on wrongful conviction cases and help families uh, to investigate them. But we have Ryan alone in a supermarket and there was something so quotidian about the the basket over his arm and shopping. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yes, you've been eating prison pizza. You've probably never done a proper adult shop in your life. Who knows what you're doing as a student. And here you are in this brightly coloured vegetable aisle with strawberries. I thought it was a beautiful um, 
selection of a place, considering that we saw his life in, in grey and grey before. Um, Jess, is this the man that you met on Amazing Race? What's your, how do you feel, where's the connection? The most interesting thing to me is that they almost never talk about Ryan's background on Amazing Race. Like mm-hmm. it is the hook that gets him on the show and he mentions it. But really the Ryan you get to know, for one thing, the partner he brings on Amazing Race is completely out outshines him personality wise. Like, mm-hmm. and I do not blame Ryan one bit for being like a little bit reserved. I think that's probably how he always was, but right. his life circumstances have made him more so. Um, so he gets a lot of, he takes a backseat to Dusty for a lot of the amazing race. Um, and there is a mention, of course, of how, you know, how his life has gone, but they, they spend almost an equal amount of time on his background that the film covers, like his, unconventional upbringing like he grew up um he was born in australia and his family traveled around and his parents traveled the world together right. uh, and it, it turned into this like multi-year odyssey and that almost feels more germane to his journey on the amazing race mm-hmm. but you know there is uh there is some elements of sweetness to his like ability to do this thing that everybody dreams about and how it is something he wouldn't have envisioned ever being able to do. But Mm -hmm. you really, you almost forget that that's the guy as you're watching Amazing Race. Yeah, I was struck particularly by there's a moment where Dusty, his partner, who who may or may not be a dog, we're not quite sure, (laughs) uh, Dusty is doing... I mean, the mother, a task I would just, I I don't know how I would do it, a huge circle of stones and you have to turn over the stone to find a coin. Everybody else has done it. Dusty is there, very dog-like, hands and knees, overturning stone after stone. I mean, you would go mad because they they weren't allowed to, I think from the rules, they weren't allowed to turn over a stone and leave it face up so you knew which one you Mm -hmm. looked at. They all had to be replaced. And Ryan is, it's sort of like an amphitheatre, and he's at the top of the amphitheatre and he just really calmly and quietly because if you don't know Amazing Race, you are not allowed to help your partner uh, materially in the task. But he Mm -hmm. says to Dusty, just come up here, come up here. And he gets uh, Dusty, he calls him, come on, come on, boy, come on. Here, boy. Uh, Here, come here. Uh, To come up to the top of this amphitheatre and just to look out. It's like raise your eyes to the horizon. And we should all do this more. We should all look up more. We should all Mm -hmm. look out more. And they look out over this incredible vista and there's this, you know, almost romantic, romantic, not in the sexual sense, but Mm -hmm. romantic moment of these two young men, still young, looking out over this vista and you can't help but think, what does that mean to Ryan, even now, some, Mm -hmm. uh, some years later, to be able to stand here in this foreign land and look out over over um, a vista with a very trusted friend. So yes, Jess, you're right. They don't. It's not mentioned a lot, but I think we supply. Yeah, we supply those moments because uh, mm-hmm. uh, Ryan takes the back seat. Yeah, they try yeah. not to. They try not to make it about that because it's not really. They don't want it to take over the story, but you can. Like there is a lot of subtext, especially in moments like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think uh, from what I heard, I don't I don't know if this is true, Jess, maybe you can um, confirm this. But 
I heard that uh, Bill Ferguson was going to be Ryan's partner, but um, like his dad, Ryan and his dad were going to mm-hmm. run Amazing Race together. But then like he might not have been like he, he didn't get medically cleared or something like that. So it ended up being Dusty instead. Has, has, has that have you heard anything about that? I had heard that. I don't have any confirmation of it. Gotcha. But that would certainly that certainly makes a lot of sense. And I think the story becomes a very different one. If we and also as much as I thought Bill Ferguson was a great personality in this documentary, I think we are better off for having had Dusty in our lives. Oh my God, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Love Bill, but uh, dry is exactly the word uh, mm-hmm. for Bill. I think potentially like that prior to the 10 years he spent trying to uh, free his son, but certainly made so by this sort of relentless, I mean, uh, Leslie, Ryan's mother, does talk about uh, he had to be doing something at every moment to feel like, again, mm-hmm. his masculinity, to feel like he was actively doing something uh, to, right. to save Ryan. But, yes, the joy of, uh, of uh, Dusty, uh, I'm very glad that we got, we got that. I love Bill, though we do. Yes. Right, for sure. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's a big week when RHAP is on the road in Chicago. Check out my live show from Chicago. That's going to be up on Thursday, Wednesday night. Shannon Gus is going to be live with you with Kelly Wentworth after Survivor. And we preview the Dondi finale with Dealer No Deal Island host Joe Manganiello all right here on RHAP. We know reality TV. So, I think there's uh, just sort of one last question that we haven't mm-hmm. asked. Who killed Kent Heitholt? The documentary does not touch this, and I think that's correct, although mm-hmm. we might think, oh, I wanted to know more about that. It really isn't uh, who killed Kent. It's uh, let's see how we can get Brian out of uh, jail um there is uh the mike boyd theory i don't know if either of you have heard the mike boyd theory uh mike boyd was a co-worker of kent heitholt and is by his own uh words the last person to see kent alive he has told six different versions of the story of them leaving at around uh, 2 Mm a.m uh he has never been investigated for the crime, and uh, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to a short five-minute report from CBS 48 Hours, uh, which will just expand that theory a little bit. We are 100% on this podcast not saying that Mike Boyd uh, is in any way uh, associated or culpable in any way. We are mentioning what is called the Mike Boyd theory, and we'll we'll link to that 48 Hours uh, report. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll I, say it again. I don't think I don't think the subject of who killed him is germane to the plot of absolutely. the documentary yeah. because mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's really like it could have been anybody, but it's definitely not this guy. <laughs> yeah. And and exactly. And it's just kind of like and they need more investigation because 
everything that they have, it's just they had nothing. They basically fabricated a whole bunch of stuff to get Ryan and and to get Chuck. So like, um, I they would need to go back. And I, I, I this Mike Boyd theory is very interesting because like he said that he he last saw um Kent alive in the parking lot between two twelve a.m. and then two twenty six a.m. and then but uh it was at two twenty. 2:26 a.m. that that um they had called 911 and that he was like found so it's like that's like a it, it, that only leaves a 6 to 8 minute i think it was 6 to 8 minute window between the last time that Mike Boyd saw Kent alive and when i think either Shauna or called 911 or 911 got there i wasn't really clear and then it also is very interesting because if they said they saw saw those two those two guys right they said they saw two guys around Kent's car and 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 um what Shauna said was they saw two teenage college age guys uh, around Kent's car and they yell out to them hey somebody's hurt over here man or something like that let me just make sure let me get the exact quote um uh Oh, I thought I had it. I'm sorry. But yeah. That sounds right. That sounds yeah, right but yeah. basically the two guys called out to them like somebody's hurt over here and then they just ran down an alley. Um, that's really interesting to me. You know what I'm saying? Because it's like, were those two people that Shauna and Jerry saw not, again, not even you know affiliated with the murder? Were they just poking around? Who's unidentified unidentified fingerprints are there like there's so much that that needs to be answered and you know we're not gonna there's no answers on this podcast i'm sorry <laughs> guys <y'all are> <laughs> but i but i i think jess you're right i mean that and this is again one of the uh, one of the beauties of the documentary it doesn't try to do anything but mm-hmm. a story of not who done it but who didn't done it and how <laughs> to how to untangle that uh that wrongful conviction it's, so it 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 very clearly sets out its um it markers and and uh, trots along uh, with it i like this uh uh documentary very much and we just give our ratings of uh one to five magnifying glasses as to how much we liked this uh the, the thing we're talking about five being the best what what would be your number of magnifying glasses for dream killer i mean i would give it four i mean, it it doesn't it's not a wild ride per se, but it's mm-hmm. certainly, it's thought provoking. I think it's well produced. Um, it's definitely, if you're interested in the subject matter, I don't think you can do any better. Mm. Yeah. Mari, what about you? Um, I, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to give it a three. Uh, uh, let's go with a three and a half because I, I do think that it is indeed well produced. Like, like just said but yeah it it can be dry it's it's not exciting you know what i'm saying um but i do think that they did the first 10 minutes very well i think that they did it in a way that it very it very well like hooked me um in a sense and i think i like the way that they actually laid out the story um i do feel like there might have been a few like a few things missing but overall, I'll, I'll say a 3.5 because it's not the best thing that I've seen. It's not the best uh, true crime documentary or wrongful conviction documentary that I've seen. Um, but it's pretty good. Pretty good. 
Yeah, I, I like this very much. I think that the story was clear. The story that um, the director decides to tell is very clear. Um, we have Bill to narrate it for us. We have a very uh, a sympathetic subject in Ryan. I'd be very interested in a wrongful conviction case against a very unattractive person uh, <laughs> and see how we go. Um, it's certainly the story is compelling, I think, uh, after the unnecessary uh, showing of the uh, crime scene. I think it sets itself up very well. I think the dryness that Jess mentioned is certainly there. The animation elevates it. I'm And the music was very good as well. I'm looking forward to the Cabbage Patch Kids uh, documentary now, uh, you know, some years later, and, and perhaps he's hired to just craft a little bit more. I'm going with 3.5 magnifying glasses for Dream Killer. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as you say, Mari, there are wrongful conviction documentaries that are, you know, so compelling. And I think the big two, which people will know, and if you haven't seen them, they're sort of required, really. Uh, and one is The Thin Blue Line, uh, directed by Errol Morris, mm-hmm. who incidentally uh, directed the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos ad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see uh, you see him in the um, in the documentary actually doing it. Think, Errol, what are you doing? And he's uh, referred to in um, uh, The Dropout. And the other is The Paradise Lost, a trilogy directed by Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky. So those are two uh, really to check out if you're interested in wrongful conviction. Uh, And we have a listener recommendation. This comes from Nicholas, who would like to inject a little serial killer into our true crime. So he recommends uh, two books on the uh, two uh, properties on the uh, Yorkshire Ripper. Uh, One is Gordon Burns' 1984 book, Somebody's Husband, Somebody's Son, and also the four-part Netflix series from 2020, uh, called The Ripper. So if you're interested in serial killing, if you're interested in the Yorkshire Ripper, which is a particularly uh, chilling case and certainly looks at um, uh, British police um, practices as well, uh, that's that's an avenue you can explore. Um, Jess, have you got some recommendations for us? Well, can I give you three? You can give us 20. Well, I'm going to start because I mentioned the Case File podcast up top and I'm kind of surprised that not everybody in the world is jumping mm-hmm. on this the first thing in the morning on Saturday mornings because this is, I it, for my money, if you are looking to get into true crime and you're looking to uh, learn more about like any classic case, um, case file is it. Like it's just great storytelling, really well put together, and with a focus on Australia because the host is Australian. So Sarah, I how do you- I not know it? I, this is well, embarrassing. <laughs> they did a five part. They did a five part series on Ivan Milat. So that's where when you mentioned that on the first episode of Crime Scene, I was like, "What?" Because I just finished listening to like five weeks of the Langlo murders, so um, I knew all about that. Um, and there are, you know, it's well known cases, and then there's little known cases. They just did a multi part series on the Zodiac Killer. Maybe the best one is probably the three-part story on um, Silk Road, which is great because it's not just a murder. It's like an entire, you know, it's, you know, cybercrime and drug dealing. And um, that is, it's it's a really great podcast. I definitely, anybody that's into true crime is going to love it. Um, right. And then I'm going to recommend two books. Uh, while we're on the subject of wrong, wrongful conviction, I think um, you have to go to Amanda Knox um, and her memoir is called Waiting to be Heard. And it is 
a really interesting deep dive into like the nature of criminal investigations and how police pull confessions out of people and the fragility of memory and all of that. And she's, you know, she's a great writer and anybody it's like Brian Ferguson. Anytime you spend more than five minutes looking at this case, it's like, how did she spend any time? How did she spend a minute in jail for this? Mm-hmm. So I would recommend that. And then I just finished a book, um, called Savage Harvest, a tale of cannibals, colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's tragic quest for primitive art. That's a mouthful. Mm. Uh, the author is Carl Hoffman. And the story behind that is, um, Michael Rockefeller was the 23-year-old son of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, and he was an art dealer, an art collector, and he was especially interested in so-called primitive art. So he goes to Indonesia, to the island of Papua, to collect wood carvings from the Azmat tribe, and then he disappears. And the question becomes, what happened to him? Did he drown? Um, Did he die of exposure? Was he killed murdered and possibly eaten by by these warring factions of asmat um of, of asmat warriors and then so carl hoffman decides he's going to get to the bottom of this and he has an agenda and it's not i think it's really great if you're going to zoom out and look at like biases and how they inform um who tells a story and how they tell a story it's great on that end and also like dream killer it starts out with this really gruesome like almost like, he's describing what he thinks happened in this incredibly graphic and gruesome way um mm-hmm. informed by what he has found out about how these people were living in the 1960s and then he exposes many little biases along the way but also is it's just a really fascinating subject and interesting story and the art that Michael Rockefeller collected can still be viewed in the Metropolitan Museum today. So I'm going to try to go this weekend and see it. Um, So yeah, I've got very into this book and it was, you know, lightning fast read um, really well done. If you have Amazon prime, I think you can read it for free. So Uh, if you, if you wait, I'll come with you next weekend. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Those are my recommendations. Mari, what about you? What about you? What have you got for us today? So, of course, I'm going to uh, recommend When They See Us, um, the Netflix docu, the the crime drama based on the Central Park Five, also known as the Exonerated Five. Um, It is based on the Central Park jogger case it is the quintessential case of wrongful conviction in my community you know what i'm saying as a black woman as you know knowing that more more often than not wrongfully convicted people are normally black or brown here in the u.s you know um and not only that but they are less likely to get their convictions overturned they are less likely if they do get their convictions overturned to be paid for the time that they spent in jail and they are more uh they're um we are are more often will spend a longer amount of time wrongfully convicted. So, you know, Ryan spending 10 years in jail as compared to um, some other cases that have where people have spent like 30, 40 plus years in jail wrongfully convicted. Um, and it's not a, you know, it's not a race or anything like that. But When They See Us is one of the greatest like TV series. Ava DuVernay um, wrote it. It is a, a limited series. Um, and it is a doc, it is a docudrama, of course, like we talk about. 
about here. I don't even know if we call it docudrama. It's a series. And all of the actors do a very good job of going over the case. I think the case is presented very well. I think the acting in that is amazing. And it is very hard to watch. It is very hard to watch um, uh, for a number of reasons. And if if anybody's been listening to me and Chappelle talk about uh, talk on Atlanta, we talked about it just this past week, how he hasn't watched it. And um, and I don't blame him because you know, it, it runs in us. So we know what happened. We don't need to, you don't need to tell us what happened, but it's great. I suggest it. Also the documentary, the Central Park Five um, documentary by um, Ken Burns is always a good as well if you want to go the documentary route. Um, but that that is a case that um, truly still haunts me. And um, I think the story needs to be told um, so that we're always heavily scrutinizing our justice system and our judicial practices to make sure that they are fair and equitable. Um, but that's it for my recommendations. Yeah, and of course, that wonderful, wonderful properties there. And certainly yes. for New Yorkers, uh, a kind of uh, a seminal and, and case. Well, I, I mean, I had a friend that I mentioned the Central Park um what are they? Not uh, the, the Central you, Park. You uh, you can say either the Central Park jogger case, or you can talk about the Exonerated Five. Yeah, the Exonerated Five. Mm-hmm. So I I think I was saying that I'd seen the, the Ken Burns uh, documentary, and it was about the Central Park jogger case. And she said, "Oh yes, those five kids." It's like no, this is long after they were exonerated because the the uh, press on their conviction was front page, and on their exoneration was buried and this is another thing that needs to be looked at as as well so yeah excellent recommendations and certainly thank you for bringing up those yes. those numbers and in terms of the different races. most of them had already served their sentence by the time they were exonerated so mm-hmm. it's it's a lot it's a lot so definitely go watch that because those both the the documentary and the the series do a great job of explaining the case explaining how justice was not served and um just a, a very a need to know if you're if you're if you are if you care about wrongful conviction cases though that is a very need to know case for for everybody Okay, so at Crime Scene, we are eager to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. See, if you suggest it, we might cover it. Look, look right here. It's happening right now. Uh, you can follow Crime Scene on Twitter at Crime Scene R-H-A-P. That's C-R-I-M-E-S-E-E-N-R-H-A-P. Or email us uh, at Crime Scene R-H-A-P at gmail.com. Again, that's Crime Scene S-E-E-N. Um, so Jess, what do you have going on? Where can people find you? Um, you can find me over on Twitter or the gram at Haymaker Hattie. Mm-hmm. And right now I'm covering The Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead and All Property Zombie on mm-hmm. post-show recaps with um, Josh Wiggler and Chappelle and AJ Mass. Some conglomeration of the four of us is there every week talking about what's happened on Fear the Walking Dead. And then I have other small one-off podcasts here and there and just sitting around waiting for the next season of Amazing Race, really. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, how about you? 
so you can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Carradine. Uh, I just did a Survivor podcast, if you can believe that, me talking about Survivor, filthy casual that I am, over on Silent Podcasts uh, with Gia Worthy and the Real Weird Sisters. We had uh, lots of fun. And I've just wrapped up the Bridgerton coverage on post-show recaps uh, with The Dark Walk, which is me, Kirsten McInnes, Geneva Guadalupe and uh, Sasha Joseph. So if you follow me on Twitter, I am not shy about saying all the things that I'm doing, so you definitely won't miss out. (laughs) Um, Mari, what about you? Where can people find you? Okay, you can always find me on Twitter uh, at Mari Talks Too Much. That's two, like the number two. Um, every week here with you, Sarah, for Crime Scene. And of course, like I said, me and Chappelle are over on Post Show Recaps covering season three of Atlanta. So it's been very, it's been very fun, but also very draining <laughs> um, this season. Uh, so go check that out over on Post Show Recaps. But you know what else you should check out? You should check out the Hot Mess Express. Uh, <laughs> the Hot Mess Express is en route to a new destination with season nine of the 90 Day Fiance uh, podcast. So, of course, our fearless conductor, Puya Zanvikili, has got us covered. Um, so who is going to be the worst couple? Who will rise up their weekly power rankings? These are just a few questions that Puya will answer weekly with an amazing cast of guests coming throughout the season to talk about the wild ride that is 90 Day Fiance. I will be and yes. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So make sure you are following um the 90 Day Fiance podcast so you can hear when both me and Sarah come up. Um and you can go, you can subscribe uh by going to robhasawebsite.com slash 90 day feed so you can keep up with the hot mess express. So uh what's coming up next on crime scene, Sarah? Well, next time on Crime Scene, a friend of the pod and true crime maven Sarah D. Bunting is returning to discuss The Painter and The Thief. Uh, She brought us this uh, property and we jumped on it with uh, both feet because it's absolutely fascinating. It's available in Australia on SBS On Demand and in the US it's on Hulu. So watch it and send us your questions and comments for next time. Thanks to Will from America for the theme music and to Scott St. Pierre behind the scenes. Until next time, case Case closed. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.